1: Short hair
0: with a Van again. Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorf, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined by the professor of law at Chase Law School, Ken Katkin. But I am also specially joined by Liz Katkin, who is a lawyer, an author, a fertility expert and a consultant in her day job. She is a corporate lawyer serving general counsel for LDK Logistics Incorporated. And in her spare time, she is a nonprofit board member and a self-proclaimed political junkie. Ken, Liz, I'd like to welcome you both to the show. Thanks, Trey.
1: Yeah, thanks, Trey. I'm happy to be here.
0: I'm going to be honest, I feel a little bit outgunned today. You know, I got the, the illustrious catkin uh, uh, brother and sister here. And I, I know you guys uh, are going to outflank me on the left probably. So I feel like I got to dig in today and tap my inner J and be extra conservative. <laughs> yeah, well, you can or you can prey on Liz's inexperience at this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Liz, do you have any response to him on that?
1: Oh, (laughs) it's been the weaker cat, Ken, so I've had a lifetime of getting used to it.
0: (laughs) This is going to be a lot of fun. So, Liz, thank you so much for joining us today on The Politics Guys uh, and being here. And uh, uh, Ken, I would thank you, but you're always here. You have to be here. It's it's a requirement. I I took my vows. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Well. We've got a lot of really good stories. I think for us, this uh, for this show, we're going to be starting out talking about uh, Trump and his racketeering charges in Georgia. The fallout from that. We'll also be talking a little bit about what we see coming forward in terms of the first of the primary debates uh, as they might go forward uh, next week or might not go forward. We're going to take a look at what a, a little story that became a big, fascinating story uh, of a police raid of a Kansas City paper. Uh, We're also going to talk about some uh, standoffs we've seen in the Senate over normal rules as it comes to confirming uh, military leaders. And then we have a few other things uh, on deck, depending on what we have in in course of time. Uh, So what we're going to start with, though, is we're going to start with which undoubtedly is the biggest story of the week. And that is the Trump racketeering charges. So we It feels like the last few weeks of the politics, guys, has really been the look at you know who today has been charged and, and prominent among uh, who has been charged over the last few weeks, of course, is former President Donald Trump uh, getting yet another charge, along with a number of co-conspirators in a case coming out of Georgia. Now, the case where a grand jury has brought in an indictment after a two-year investigation by Fulton County District Attorney Danny Willis. The charges surround Trump's effort uh, to undo the 2020, his 2020 defeat in Georgia. Now, it appears that Trump is going to turn himself in in Georgia sometime next week. Uh, at least as of uh, Friday, it appears that he's looking to do that in approximately a week. We'll see what comes of that. Now, the initial probe came from a recorded phone call on January 2nd in 2021 in which then-President Trump urged Repu- Republican Brad Raffensperger uh, to find enough votes to overturn the election. Now, as a reminder, there has and was both a recount and a partial forensic audit of it, and no issues were uncovered. But nevertheless, that's where Trump laid some of that ah, blame, we might put in quotation marks. Now, in that final tally, of course, Trump loses by about 12,000 votes out of the 5 million votes cast in Georgia. As a result of that two-year probe this week, Willis recommended uh, that the trial begin in March of 2024 uh, on approximately March 4th. or That's right before Super Tuesday, and I think something that uh, we'll all need to talk about. Now, although there hasn't been any motion from Trump's attorneys yet, because, of course, he hasn't turned himself in, Uh, Trump's attorneys in other cases have argued that for his other criminal trials—yeah, that's unfortunate when you have to be saying that uh, sentence—that the trial trial should be held after November 2024, that is, after the presidential election. Now, meanwhile, one of the co-conspirators who has also been charged, Mark Meadows, the former chief of staff, and, of course, one of those co-defendants that I've just mentioned, has launched an attempt to attempt to move the charges to federal court from— district, uh, excuse me, from state court, according to the Wall Street Journal. Now, this notice of removal, that what that means effectively is that you're trying to change the venue to federal court is going to be heard here on August 28th. Now it, it appears from a number of legal stop callers, there's a possibility of that moving forward. But whether it moves forward or not, even if it's eventually not allowed, it would allow for a significant amount of delay because that would allow you to have a number of appeals. So that's a lot right there. So I'm just going to pause right here. And Liz, since you're our you know our guest, I'm going to let you have kind of the first crack. What do you think about kind of these, I would say, historic, maybe historic number of charges, but the specifically the Georgia's charges coming against Trump from Danny Willis?
1: Well, I think it's good news. I'll start with that. <laughs> <I think>
0: it's, <laughs> OK.
1: It's, a, it's not good news for Mr. Trump. Um, but I think it's, you know, the, the sweep and scope of the case is pretty impressive. And there's a lot of speculation over the last couple of years about what they were doing down in Georgia. And I think, you know, it was extremely well thought out the way they, they placed it in the racketeering laws. I think having this, this enormity of state charges as opposed to federal charges is, is very good news for people in the camp of wanting to make sure Trump or a future Republican couldn't pardon him so easily. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a, yeah. I, I think the you know from what from what I've read of it, the extent, the extent of the charges, not only in, in the number besides Trump, you know, the a dozen and a half other uh, people indicted. It's a, it's it's an impressive case that they've put together, and I think he's going to have a, a pretty hard time weasel his way, weaseling his way out of this.
0: Well, one of the arguments that has been made, and this has actually been one made by some of the other uh, of the guys on the show, uh, Mike, for example, was that, you know, this is the case that really should have come first. Uh, and, and, you know, yet this is, is going to be kind of the last out of the gate. Do you think that it's temporal positioning in, in, in terms of when it has happened plays an effect on how it's going to be viewed or how it might play out legally?
1: I'm going to put that one over to Ken, who has more real-world. Uh, yeah. Recording. Okay, Ken, please
0: take it away.
2: Yeah, I don't think it'll come last. Um, I, I think the only one that could come before it is the uh, January sixth case, but I think um, the, the New York case, although it was the first one where the indictment came down, uh, uh, Alan Bragg, the prosecutor in New York, has said repeatedly that he would uh, slowball that case if, if, if in in order to allow the federal cases to move ahead. Um, And Judge Eileen Cannon in the Florida federal case seems really determined not only to slowball that case as much as possible, but to try to figure out ways she can slowball the other cases. So I I don't think the the Mar-a-Lago case or the New York case is going to move quickly. I think it's either going to be the January 6th case in D.C., or the Georgia case um, that, that, that comes first and the other one of those two will come second. So um, so I know, you know some people were thinking that the prosecutors should coordinate with each other to bring the big ones first. I don't actually think it would be proper for um, prosecutors to uh, coordinate with each other that way. I think they all just had to bring the cases when they were ready to bring them. But I do think that it'll end up shaking out that way that this one is not nearly the last.
0: Well, let me be careful about what I'm saying there, because I think you guys uh, took me at face value, and that's fair. I think that was a mistake on my part. Uh, okay. But let's let's be specific in the sense of, uh, you know, for example, uh, Mike has on the show specifically, and Jay has on the show said specifically, that these – I don't mean earlier in terms of when they're going to come to trial, but when, as you were there noting there at the end, Ken, uh, that, that when the charges are brought – that some of these may be either a the, the charges just should not have been brought when you had maybe, quote unquote, more important cases like this in the wings uh, or and or should have waited for them to come first for uh, the sake of being paid more attention to. Uh, that's yeah, what I, just, I guess I was getting more at. Yeah, there,
2: right. That that's question. what I was saying. I think that Mike Mike and Jay's discussion of that. Was assuming that the prosecutors should take account of improper uh, political considerations, and I, I just don't think prosecutors should do that. You know, the the conduct in the New York case occurred first. The investigation of the New York case got done first. Probable cause um, to, to 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 charge him was was found first. So I, I don't think it would be proper for prosecutors to say, well. You know, I'm ready to bring a case, but for it, there'd be more political impact if I let some other case come first. Um, I think they just need to bring them in the order that you know as they're as they're ready. And with the Georgia case, one thing that happened that I think led to it becoming last was that when it became you know as it became really clear um, that the fake electors in Georgia were going to be charged, um, a bunch of them, I think decided to cooperate. And so there was, um, you know, more information coming in towards the end. Like, I think Fannie Willis could have brought some charges, you know, six months ago, but then suddenly, like some of the people she was going to charge would prefer to cooperate. So, of course, she needed to, you know, talk to them and and collect all the evidence from them that she could. So, that, you know, that, that slows things down. But I, I don't think, um, you know, other prosecutors should be. Saying, well, there'd be more political impact if we let her go first, so we'll just wait. You know, I think they have to bring their cases when they can bring their cases.
1: I, I agree with you on that, but I, I also uh, think, uh, you know, I'm not sure the overall impact is that 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 it's reduced. I mean, I think I'm not sure the order really matters to to most people hearing the news. I think now it's just this cumulative effect of what he's got—90, 90, 91, if I'm correct, charges against him when he put everything together—and I, I think. I'm just not sure that the order really has an impact. He, He has done, arguably done, allegedly done all of these things that have led to these separate indictments. And I think just that they will and, you know, they may continue to pile on, but they'll they'll pile on in the order that they come to the point they're ready to be brought. And I agree with Ken that prosecutors can't coordinate or delay that timing.
0: In other words, the the political assumption at the base of Mike and Jay's argument is effectively flawed is what I'm hearing you kind of both agree on in this case.
2: Yeah, I would even go so far as to say unethical. Like, I think it would be unethical for a prosecutor to try to take account of political impact as a timing consideration for for bringing a case.
0: So then the other piece here that I was looking at that I have thought about is right we have what I've already mentioned was Mark Meadows' attempt, he's one of the uh, the co-defendants in this, to move the case to federal court. Uh, and, and the argument being, at least from uh, Meadows' team, is that this takes place under the auspices of his role as chief of staff, and therefore should move to federal court. Uh, you know, a number of prominent uh, lawyers have said, kind of talking about this, look, there's a chance that that is going to be a possibility that this moves to federal court. So one question I'm going to have is, what do you think is that possibility? And then the second was kind of my editorializing on it, which was even it, whether or not that happens, it seems like it is a likely way uh, to create what I would suggest is the, the the primary Trump legal strategy, which is to delay things, which means it's going to be another opportunity to have a motion which you can appeal, and appeal before uh, the the primary uh, charges can can come to trial. So, Liz, again, I'll, I'll start with you, kind of two questions there, right? Uh, uh, take them in any order you wish.
1: Um, <laughs> it's funny. I, I don't mean to to be deflecting, but I think again, Ken's got so much more experience on that on the litigation side than I do, having spent my career as a corporate lawyer. I I'm not sure I know enough yet to know uh, the likelihood of Mark Meadows being able to remove it to federal court. I'm I'm thinking that's going to be a tough battle, but Ken, I'd welcome your thoughts on that one.
2: Yeah, I think he's got a chance. Um, I think that his argument under the federal officer removal statute is not a frivolous argument. Um, you know, I, I, I don't, I don't know that he's going to win it. But I think so many arguments I hear from the Trump people, I would just say are frivolous. And here, I think what a judge is going to, what a federal judge is going to have to decide, is um, what, what is the scope of duties of the chief of staff to the president, and if, if Meadows. Was doing things um, because he was the president's chief of staff, and the president was having um, the chief of staff uh, carry out the president's orders, and that was part of his job as chief of staff. Then he's entitled to remove to federal court. Um, on the other hand, if 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 the if the trial judge finds that. Um, None of this stuff was within the president's duties, and therefore, it wasn't within the um, chief of staff's duties to, to 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 do the president's political work for for the president, which was unrelated um, to the president's uh, job du- governmental job duties. Um, then he won't be able to remove. But I, I think there's arguments. You know, there's. These lines are blurry lines. Um, The other thing that Trey asked though is whether this is gonna um, cause a big delay. I definitely agree that Trump is trying to maximize delay. Um, And I do think that although I generally agree with uh, Liz that Fonny Willis did a a good job uh, thinking about the legal theories, I'm I'm not sure she fully thought through the litigation strategies. I I heard her say in that midnight press conference that she was going to try all 19 of these guys together. That, that that's just obviously not going to happen. And there, <laughs> there's going to be there's going to be some some severance and some. I mean, she also is expecting I think that some of them will take guilty pleas and cooperate and and that they won't end up trying all 19 of them. But I think in in the case of uh, Meadows you know, if he gets it severed, he gets it severed. And um, I'm not even sure she would appeal that. If, if the if if a, if a federal judge says, I'm going to allow this case to be removed to federal court, um, Fawny Willis would have a right to appeal that to the 11th Circuit. But I think she probably wouldn't. I think she probably wouldn't mind just moving forward with the rest of the case and trying him separately in, in federal court.
0: Liz, anything you'd like to add to that?
1: Yeah, and I, I think I think should be wise to let that go too, because I think you know the big danger of having this big group uh, of defendants, which I, I agree with Ken. At some point, it will have to be split. Is really the time factor, right? This is going to slow. It's going to be a slow process. The more defendants you have, and so um, if the interest isn't in getting, you know, Trump to trial more quickly, it, it doesn't really work against her interest to let Meadows slip away. And I'm sure she'll welcome as many, you know. Defendants reaching deals as they can.
0: So now I recognize, of course, this is a legal matter, and that you know that's and that's what we're going to focus on on one front, and, and that's what you guys are both focusing on here. But it's of course also kind of a, a political matter, and and so I can't help but be always curious about what's happening, how is this viewed, you know, wh- where are people pulling on it? And so one of the things that I was a little surprised to see this week uh, is when you take a look, at least this week according to AP Norak, uh, that only about half of U.S. adults think that there's anything about the illegality of what was happening with Trump in terms of Georgia's vote count in 2020. Now, that might seem relatively high, but this is an area where when you start breaking it down, you get some some weird differences here, right? So Democrats are not unanimous, but about as close to the unanimous as you're going to get in terms of polling at about 85%. Uh, you know, again, you're not as surprised to see that you only get about 16 uh, percent of Republicans who are going to be saying the same. But it's independence, fascinatingly enough. We're only approximately 40 percent of them, so far less than the overall average. So it's Democrats who are pulling that average. Only 40 percent of them uh, are going to say that. And it's not that many more who even just say it's unethical. Uh, it, you know, again, this is an election year. We're talking about it, and it's in an election cycle. Excuse me. Uh, we're talking about it in the terms uh, of a primary right now. That's part of what we're going to talk about in a minute. What, what do you think the the political outcomes of this trial are? I, I think one of the things that I see, and I'll just kind of start here, is that I think that for a long time Democrats have been kind of waiting and hoping on the sidelines for these cases to come up. Because not just because they want to see justice done, but I think in part because they want to have kind of a political vindication and be able to say, well, look, this is the way it's... This is going to be kind of our chance to ride in. And I'm not sure that that second half of it, justice aside, I don't think that second half is necessarily borne out in the data as I look at it. Uh, And I don't necessarily see... With the same kind of glee, again, an area where I know all three of us would agree is going to be, of course, i'm I'm on the right, but I was a nev- I'm a never trumper, but I don't necessarily agree, and I'm curious where you're going to stand on this, Liz. I see a lot of Democrats kind of seeing this as having that second element, which is, and you see, not only is justice going to come, but this is, this is going to win us points, this this is evidence, we're going to yeah, <clears throat> we've got it. And I don't see that being the case. I'll start with you. What do you think about that, Liz?
1: Yeah, I think it's a good question. I mean, it's it's complicated because, as you just said to yourself, you've got you've got Republicans and you've got Never Trumpers, and there's different different groups, right? And then you've got this MAGA base that'll support Trump no matter what, but not necessarily other Republicans. So it, it's like a complicated puzzle board. But I, I I agree to some extent that Democrats may be somewhat overconfident, but I. I think that the Georgia trial changes things a little bit in the sense that, you know, you've got the people who will never, ever lose their faith in Trump. That, that base is just there. I think that the fact that these trials will be televised and so many more facts will be coming out, you know, there's also that whole question of how many Americans watch television anymore. But I, th- <laughs> I think the impact of the, this, this, the scope and sweep, and if it is televised, and more and more facts come out, those will end up on in TikToks and podcasts and people talking about it. I think this whole idea of stealing democracy, hopefully, would be offensive to more people. I think that there there may be more Republicans and more Independents that are disturbed, at, hopefully, at the least, to hear how close things may have gotten and how many people were involved in such a grand way in trying to undermine. The vote in Georgia. Um, I I think that just, you know it will really depend on whether what Trump does. I, I think you know if Trump continues to keep running, this is going to be a very tricky situation for the Republicans because you know there is the base that won't leave Trump, but at some point, you know if if there's a possibility Trump's going to jail, they're going to have to. Ken, what are your <laughs> thoughts
0: on this? Almost oh, so, 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 Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I think Trump will be in jail soon, um, you know, long before these trials are done, because I, I don't think he's going to be able to maintain his conditions of release. And he, he hasn't really been doing it so far. And, you know, there's there's a bunch of judges. They're all trying to give him um, leeway. Uh, but if he keeps um, intimidating and threatening witnesses, intimidating and threatening the, the judges themselves, um, you know, that kind of thing, he's he's. Uh, he'll probably be in jail, you know, by the end of February would be, or yeah, I'd say, well, no, we're in August. I'd say by the, by the end of uh, December, he'll be he'll be in jail um, long before the trial. The other thing is, I think, um, you know, it, it it's the, he can't win right now today. He's got no path to the presidency, and things are all only going to get worse for him. So I, I think the kind of talk that Republicans are engaging in is if there's some possibility that Trump could be elected president of the United States in, uh, in the 2024 election, you know, they're, they're all living in a fantasy world.
1: Yeah, well, Ken, let me ask you something. I, I agree with you that I think he should be in jail. And I think if he weren't Trump, it, that, he'd already be in jail. Yeah, he would already be in jail, clearly. And I think a lot of people agree that if he weren't Trump, based on his actions, he'd already be in jail. Um, but but to take Trey's tack of the political rather than the legal, you know, what do you think the impact is of him going to jail? For his, his base, it will completely energize. But will this persuade others to think it's political, even though it's clearly legal? I mean, I, I think it's a—I'm not sure what his going to jail does—
2: well, it, it incapacitates him, right? So yeah. he's—I mean, well, let me compare this to what happened with the, the the federal indictments, or even the New York indictments. So when he's—he's he's, this is his fourth indictment already, but the the both everyone so far. You know, you're talking about proceedings where there's no cameras in the courtroom, in, in some cases where he didn't even have to attend, where he was kind of able to characterize it as a kind of routine legal proceeding. And then, and then what people actually see on TV is him like coming out of the courthouse and having a, a rally and giving a speech to his cheering followers and all that. You know, right now with the Georgia case, by the end of next week, you know, he's going to be brought into a jail where he's given a, a mug shot, that mugshot's gonna be everywhere, you know, including that it's gonna be in a jail. It's gonna already start looking more serious, you know, to, to people right away um, because of the optics of that. Um, the, these charges are are more serious and 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 netted in more people and more people are going to start turning against him publicly. You know, it may be that Jack Smith is already turning some witnesses as well. But that's all being done very invisibly. Um, but when you've got, you know, 19 other people indicted or 18 other people indicted, as in the Georgia case, then the, the process of turning and becoming cooperating uh, witnesses is is much more public and, and visible and transparent. Um, and and also he's, um, you know, he's going to actually force uh, people like uh, Governor Brian Kemp and Secretary of State Raffensburger, They've already kind of been forced by Trump's nonsense. You know, to be um, Republican voices who are calling him out. And I think in in Georgia, that's what you're going to hear. So I, I think he only loses ground from where he is today. he there, he has no chance of gaining any ground from where he is today. And from where he is today, he's in a position where he's, you know, could not possibly win a general election.
0: well, let me you know I, it's funny. I think one of the things that uh, listeners often say about our shows, Ken, is we don't disagree enough. And so, I'm kind of glad that you made that uh, uh, possibility about Trump going to jail. I think this is one of the few times where I I might have more vehemently disagreed with you. I think okay. there is I think there's a zero chance <laughs> judge, that Trump is in jail uh, uh, by the end of the year. I, I don't see that as happening. I don't think that's going to happen. And and I think it, it, it doesn't happen for entirely non-legal reasons. I, I don't think there are any I don't think there is a judge, Democrat or Republican. Who is going to place Trump into jail? Yeah, I I, I mean, again, I'm not disagreeing with the the legality of what you're suggesting, but I I, I think you're just wrong that that it's going to take an individual judge to do. And I don't think that's going to happen.
2: Yeah, I don't think he's leaving a much choice, though, Trey. He's, he's threatening the judges themselves. He's threatening the witnesses. He's out there tweeting, you know, if, if anyone comes after me, I'm coming after them. You know, you can't run a trial if you have somebody out there doing that kind of stuff.
0: I don't. I mean, again, I don't disagree with. I mean, again, I, I don't disagree with that. But I still don't think that you end up having Trump in jail. I don't think there's a judge that wants to be the person who puts Trump in jail. And I think on the right you're not going to have a Republican want to do it because they're not going to want to be ostracized from Republicans. And I honestly think the Democrats don't want to be the Democratic person to do it because then they're going to get labeled as doing it for political reasons. And and that's actually why I'll go one step further. I understand the desire to want to say that the uh, that, that having the cameras make Trump and having the mug, mugshot makes it look worse. And just for listeners, keep in mind the what, the reason this is the case is. Georgia law actually requires that there be cameras allowed during judicial proceedings unless there is some compelling reason that a judge bar them. Uh, So they need to be able to have something like, say, well, look, we've got a juvenile victim or a witness. And those kinds of rules are unlikely to apply in this particular case. And again, I recognize that a lot of individuals are going to say, look, this is going to make Trump look worse. However, I'm going to go back to pre-2016, and that is precisely what I argued would happen to Trump when he started running for office. And I think it, I think it downplays one of the centerpieces of what makes Trump Trump, which is his ability to, to, to do well in the social media and the television space and and i honestly think this helps does not hurt him and i'm making that prediction because i was l- wrong so badly <laughs> the first yeah. time when he was running and and i think it's easy to fall into that trap because when you follow him closely you think okay this guy's just going to stumble it's going to look terrible he's going to look guilty it's going to be horrible and it doesn't end up working that way he is either Uh, accidentally or purposely phenomenal at that
2: courtroom courtroom proceedings different i'm sorry liz you talk
1: yeah no i I was going to say the same thing I, i mean i hear what you're saying and he's he's a slippery eel that one but uh it is very different when when he's in control of the situation he's often been in tv when he's in control of the situation and he's he's masterful at controlling his his media presence and coverage but I think, as Ken was about to say, I didn't mean to cut you off. It, it's different when you're in a defendant in a legal proceeding. And just from reading the news coverage of the of the federal case and the other courtrooms he's been in, um, almost every every piece of written journalism I've seen has said how he was, you know, a little bit cow. Like the judge came in and he was not his usual self. He was quiet. He was looking at his feet. Like I think he won't be able to control the media spin when he's a defendant in a courtroom. The way
2: he has to date, right. and all the witnesses are going to be Republicans too. So, you know, the witnesses are going to be um, the the Georgia Secretary of State, the the Georgia Lieutenant Governor, um, you know, people like that. The fake electors themselves, many of whom are going to turn against him, you know. So, it's it's not going to look like this is a bunch of Democrats piling on. It's, it, the, the, the 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 most of what people are going to see when they watch these trials is um, Republican officials. Or, or Republican, um, uh, you know, at least party officials, um, uh, you know, saying that that they were involved in these crimes with Trump, and and he's only gonna, you know, he's only gonna get to, you know, be speaking, you know, maybe, you know, five percent at most of of everything that anyone's gonna hear, and he's immediately gonna be shown to be a liar. Like everything that he says, they'll just put up evidence immediately showing that he's lying, and uh, I don't think he's gonna come out of this looking well. He doesn't get to control the pacing or anything like that of how information is presented.
0: Well, let's take this out a step further, because next week is scheduled to be the first Republican debate. And there has been a lot of hullabaloo as it comes around to the idea that, that everybody's going to have to support, sign a written support, that they're going to support the eventual nominee for the republic out of, that wins the Republican primary. And, and Trump has made it relatively clear to this point that he's not going to do that, uh, that you know, he's not going to show up. And likewise, it appears that the RNC is going to potentially you know, kind of hold their their position here and say, you can't be in. This comes at the same time, I I think, from the Trump side, at least, my my reading of this is is he's kind of playing his discussion about that alongside what's been going on in Georgia because he argued on Truth Social this week uh, before he just 24 hours-ish later uh, rescinded that, that he was going to have this big press conference instead. He was going to reveal all of his evidence. I was telling our Discord listeners, I said, listen, if he does it, it's going to be at the exact same time as, as, as the Republican debates. Uh, but he ends up pulling it. So I'm, I'm sort of kind of right. But what we what he then goes on to say is, look, it looks like he's going to have a competing interview with Tucker Carlson, maybe even on uh, uh, X, you know, the social media site formerly known as Twitter uh, in, in large part of his because of his anger at Fox News. Ha, I mean, again, it's it's hard not to see what's happening in Georgia and him turning himself in as it's all coming in the same week next week as the debate Last thoughts about what goes down with the debate and if your guys hypothesis is is correct and I'm wrong uh, You know, who is it right? Nobody's polling right now in a way that seems like they can beat trump Does this even matter like well, what's your take on that for next week as we kind of close out our thoughts on on trump with? uh, uh, This conversation about the uh, the upcoming republican debate, Uh, liz, why don't you take us off first? Yeah, so i'll go out
1: on a limb here. My, My thought is that you know he turns himself in the day of the debate to take all the air out of the room and that he gets all the coverage and the debate gets none. Um,
0: that would be brilliant. Yeah,
1: he takes himself out of the debate at the exact time of the debate uh, so that other than maybe, you know, Fox News coverage of the debate, everybody else is covering Trump.
0: And that would then allow him to have uh, uh, the Carlson interview at a slightly later time and therefore be – talking about and and spending that turn in. OK, OK, Ken, thoughts?
2: He better have that Carlson debate at a slightly earlier time, because um, unlike every other time he's been booked, he's not going to be out of there in four hours. I, th- I think he could well be in there 10 hours or 12 hours when he goes in to get booked this time. Um, they, they've been really telegraphing that they're going to treat him like any other a uh, defendant who comes in to get booked, and it is not a four-hour process or a two-hour process like he's been getting. Um, I, I basically think that why would he go to the debates? He's not going to go to the debates. He didn't even go to all the debates, you know, back in the um, in in 16 or or 20, um, and and he is, you know, so far ahead of of all the other Republicans right now. Um, He really has nothing to gain by giving them um, a a platform where, you know, they can they can be seen on the same stage as him. So I think for a million reasons, he's he's not going to these debates.
0: Okay, well, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Why don't we pause here for just a brief moment and we'll come back and we'll start up with our story on the Kansas City police raid on a paper. Okay, so Liz, Ken, the other, it was a small, might have been a small story, but it ended up being a really huge story and it kind of gripped me, I'll be honest, was the small town of Marion, Kansas ended up being maybe, and will continue to be kind of a huge news moment. Late last Friday, police officers obtained a warrant for the local Marion newspaper allowing them to search through 15 different types of materials, ranging from documents to electronics, on the suspicion of identity theft and unlawful acts concerning a computer. Now, the documents that were seized were all related to a Kerry newell and any of the devices had been used to access the Kansas Department of Revenue's website. Now, the judge who signed the order Uh, Laura Veer has had her own kind of history, but we'll save that for just a minute. But she allowed the seizure to move forward. And that's unusual because you generally need a subpoena when you're dealing with the press. Now, this week, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation took the case over from those local police. And meanwhile, that search warrant that led to the Friday police raid was withdrawn, uh, but not after kind of a worldwide focus on what was going on. Now, one possibility floated by the Marion County record itself—that's the paper—was that it had had this as a result of an investigation into the local police chief, who came from Kansas City proper under more than a little bit of suspicion. Now. Another bit, again, as I was kind of mentioning there, is that the search warrant did not have a probable cause affidavit attached to it. Now, what, what that means is, is that generally a judge has to give a reason why they authorize the raid, and that has not been able to be produced. There isn't one. And this intersects with another important question, which is the Privacy Protection Act, which broadly prohibits law enforcement officials from searching or seizing information Uh, uh, from reporters. But the police chief argued that the act did not show me that this particular uh, 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 seizure did not fall under the acts category. And therefore, that subpoena, that next level wasn't necessary. Uh, And so this week, as a matter of fact, today on Friday, even the uh, White House spoke out against this, uh, uh, saying this was kind of an attack on First Amendment rights. Ken, I'll let you lead off. What did you think about that? I mean, again, I was just kind of gripped by the whole deal because, again, having been involved in a lot of smaller times, smaller areas, smaller counties— this maybe uh, resonated a little more for me. I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm not always the big city guy like like you are. Yeah. So.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, the facts the facts are very um, dense and and are very small townish, I guess. So there's kind of two different lines of narrative about you know what was going on. So um, so you have this new police chief uh, in this town of Marion, Kansas. Uh, he'd been a longtime police veteran in Kansas City, I guess, and he he came out to Marion to become the chief. And at least one thing that the newspaper is looking into is um, why did he leave Kansas City? Why did he come to Marion? And there's some rumors um, that he was uh, you know caught with uh, doing sexual harassment um, uh, in uh, of other police officers in uh, Kansas City. No one knows if that's true or not, but it's. Um, or at least I don't know if that's true or not, but it, it seems that is one thing that the paper uh, was looking into. And then there's this totally separate thing going on where um, there's a, a, um, a restaurant owner who's a kind of politically active in town, and she's um, both in the middle of getting divorced and she's trying to get a liquor license for her restaurant. And uh, apparently her, her um, estranged spouse is going to the newspaper and saying, look, I'll give you all her DWI convictions, documents of all that, and so you can publish that she's not actually eligible to get a liquor license because she's been convicted of DWI too many times. And um, there's some question about how how this guy got those records and whether these were confidential records that were somehow uh, taken off of a police computer. Maybe somebody used identity fraud to get it off a police computer. So so I think the sort of nominal basis for the search warrant was that, they're, that they were looking into a crime of whether someone had gained access to these DWI records by hacking into a police computer or a court computer or by using a false identity to get onto those computers, and that might be a crime, and so that's nominally what they were searching for. But but people also think that this is retaliation because they're looking into the police chief and his sexual harassment. So that's kind of my understanding of the the very Peyton Place type small town type facts that these these stories are intermingled with each other. Um, in any event, um, I, I, I'm glad you focused on the Privacy Protection Act, uh, Trey, because the, you know, the First Amendment law in this area is not as good as it should be for the press, and the the leading Supreme Court case, which is an old case from 1978 called Zurcher versus Stanford Daily, um, had actually held that police can go ahead. And uh, under the First Amendment, and execute a, a search warrant based on probable cause in a newsroom, and and take uh, confidential materials that a reporter has to to to, to work on a story. Um, but Congress did overrule that case um, in in a, the Privacy Protection Act of 1980, which is a statute that was passed specifically to strengthen uh, press freedoms. Um, above uh, what the court had held in Zurcher versus Stanford Daily. And uh, I, I'm trying to get the key language of the statute here um, uh, the, to, to read it. Um, yeah, so the, the, the Privacy Protection Act says, notwithstanding any other law, representatives of the government may not search a newsroom for the purposes of obtaining work product or documentary materials relating to a criminal investigation or criminal offense if there's reason to believe that the work product belongs to someone who will publish it in a public communication um, uh, that affects interstate commerce. So the um, language is a little bit dense, but it definitely puts a strong uh, presumption there that the police couldn't shouldn't take uh, a reporter's information um, if the reporter's using that information uh, to work is still working on a story that they actually do hope to publish and that's when the public will will get the information so it probably looks like there was a violation of that um and and in fact the you know i guess the da already backed down and um returned all the material that was taken
0: yeah i mean mean, that that could have been because of the politics of it too you know that's that's the interesting question here so uh, liz what what, anything you'd like to add here
1: yeah i just add more on the human interest fund i think ken Covered the law pretty well, but the judge, who you alluded to is some strange things. The judge also had a couple of DUIs, and uh, there, there's been no clear cor- connection, but some intimation that the judge and the restaurant owner uh, also had some type of relationship. And also, I don't know. I don't think I heard you mention in the beginning, but I thought one of the more uh, human, disturbing aspects of that raid was the. It was the owner, uh, the editor, who I think is. In his late sixties, and his mother, who was the owner, who was ninety-eight years old, who who died the day after the raid. Um, that was kind of a big news story until the other stuff started to overshadow it. But it's a uh, it, it adds to the small town intrigue of what what's going on in Marion.
2: Yeah, this was so upsetting for the ninety-eight year old uh, owner of the paper that um, that they, they did that the police came and raided her newsroom. That 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 stressed her out. And some yeah. people are saying that cause, I mean, I don't, I suppose, you know, we don't have, we don't have a <laughs> coroner's report saying why she died in 98 year old. Well, and even if we did, I'm not yeah. sure
0: if it was going to be like, and the cause was police yeah. raid. I don't think there's a yeah. box yeah. for that. Yeah,
1: but it's, but it's disturbing nonetheless. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it we definitely know, and, is. And, and I think yeah, that, and that I mean,
0: yeah. one of the things that's kind of, that, that it's worth, I love that you kind of put in that, that human side there, Liz, is because right. As a guy who does, you know, political communication is one of my areas. I think we forget how oftentimes, you know, what stories we kind of root to, and one of the things that makes a story far more sticky, something that we're going to think about and want to be connected to, is that personal element, right? You know, it's the old right. If uh, if thousands of people, if tens of thousands of people are hurt by a hurricane, that's sad in the passing. Uh, but you know, watching the singular grandmother uh, who who's losing all of her possessions, that's the thing that we gravitate towards. Or in in this case, right, the uh, uh, the old woman who who, who dies.
1: Yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah, I think there's also a little bit of mystery left still now about what the Kansas Bureau of Investigation is doing. And so so the, the Kansas Bureau of Investigation is is now investigating the case. But they've actually been pretty close lipped about whether that means they're investigating the, the police and why they did this raid um, or whether it means they're actually investigating the newspaper. You know right. I mean? It could it could be either. We really don't know what they're up to right now.
1: The the police chief I believe resigned uh, was it yesterday yeah, yesterday or today it was
0: late afternoon yesterday I think Liz
1: yeah yeah he stepped down so I don't which which may or may not mean that he's being investigated but that it was my I guess my suspicion was that they were investigating the raid more than the paper but you're right we don't actually know
2: yeah and I I never count on those kind of
0: bureaus of investigation to to you know be, <laughs> the, um, yeah, to investigate the people they ought to be investigating. Yeah, so. And see this this right here I think is why sometimes we get along uh uh so well, Ken, as so <laughs> well yeah. to see like, right my, my libertarian distrust, I think, sometimes comes out in in your more uh modern uh uh liberal distrust. And so we overlap <laughs> So I think we might want to move forward, uh, come to another, and this is one, I think in a different era where not as many things were getting kind of all of the news attention would have probably been one of the lead stories for this week. But this past Monday, the United States Navy became the third military branch not to have a Senate confirmed leader for the first time in history, at least according to routers in the Wall Street Journal. So uh, Senate, Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama now has blocked numerous military nominations from moving forward, and he has argued that he will continue to hold the line on this front. Now, now, what he's doing precisely, again, for those who, who are trying to understand this, the Senate works through a process generally known as unanimous consent. And what that means is is that All of the senators have to agree to the rules of debate uh, on any particular uh, bill or item that is coming forward to the floor. And if they all agree to it, then those rules hold. But any one particular senator uh, who does not agree ends unanimous uh, consent, and it doesn't stop that process from moving forward, but of course, it makes it a far more difficult process. And at this point, the Senate has not wanted to have to deal with that difficult process. Now, the reason that Tumberville has been taking this position is, is that he has argued that the Defense Department needs to change its policy to grant leave on reimbursement for travel costs for service members seeking abortions because there's no particularly good reason to do it. And secondly, in his phrase... Congress then needs to pass that policy into a law uh, and to make that move forward. Now, the Senate could take up issues on either one of these fronts. It could continue to move these forward, uh, but it just doesn't want to in large part because if you're not doing the normal process, it takes a lot of times. Uh, As of my last taking a look at it, uh, the Congressional Research Service has been estimating that it would take several months for the Senate to get through all of the nominations that would be required. And Liz, I know this kind of intersects a little bit uh, uh, with your area. So I'm really curious what you think about what's been going on here in the Senate.
1: Well, I mean, I I think it's ridiculous that that one senator has held up so many hundreds of appointments and that the Army, Navy and Marines all are lacking heads um, because of tubercles. So I just I I think it's pretty outrageous. But uh, I, I also think he's you know, he's taken an issue that that is essentially a non-issue because he wants to throw abortion into the spotlight. I mean, I think the amount of spending, I don't have that exact figure with me now, but to cover abortions for service members as as a percentage of our military budget is, is very, very small. I think it's also substantially less than it costs for pregnant military members to actually carry a pregnancy to term and have a child at all the costs involved in that and not be able to serve. So I think the the funding argument is a really spurious argument um, that he's, he's using because he is anti-abortion and he's using his power to to block the appointments.
0: Ken, what do you think?
1: Yeah,
2: well, of course that's all correct. I mean, I, I think it's, It's also, I mean, at the number and now the, you know, the level of um, appointments that he's blocking, you know, 300 people, including very high ranking people, um, there is definitely harm being done to U.S. national security. And, you know, the, the Washington Post article that I think we all read, you know, um, which lists, like, you know, all, all the, 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 the vacant seats that are being held up now, um, the commander of the Pacific Air Force, the commander of the um, uh, Air Combat Command in, in, in the U.S., the commander of the U.S. Northern Command in, in, uh, in at the Space Force Base in Colorado, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You know, if, if all these nominations are being held, Up, then it is definitely impairing uh, military readiness. And um, you know, I I I don't know, you know, where what is going to be the thing that breaks the logjam. It seems to me the thing that should break it is just that Schumer should just move things forward on a simple majority vote, and maybe he will at some point. But that would be a a tremendous break with um, tradition. But I don't I don't really see Tuberville backing down. And I I think there's a certain point where you know that the 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 majority in the Senate you know, has to think about changing its rules um, in order to um, function and in order to not uh, grievously impair the U.S. national security.
0: I don't have as much sympathy for the Senate. I mean, this is part of the process. You have this, you know that you can do this. The Senate could put these through. I mean, there are the votes to make these happen. It's just a matter of they don't want to take the time to do it uh I mean, I mean these could be going through would it take a while of course like i was just mentioning it, it would take several months to get now because of the backlog you now have uh but, but that's you, several you, months you could, where they can't do anything else where they can't legislate i mean that's true but i mean that that's the rules that you operate under, and and they should have been doing this at the outset, right? When Tuberville st- stuck in and said, "Look, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna have unanimous consent." They should have not allowed this giant backlog. They should have been going through, uh, 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 uh through what you call the long vote process in the Senate at at the outset. Uh, in all honesty, uh, my guess is is I don't think you're gonna see uh, uh, Schumer make that kind of move. Not because it wouldn't necessarily be a, a possibility, but because I think he likes it, right? Th- this is phenomenal. If you're a Democrat in terms of like uh, uh, running for election, uh, you don't want to change this process. And you could. And again, you've got the Republican votes to make it happen had you been doing it all the way through. But it's a great political issue. And tu- Tuberville thinks he's winning. Uh, 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 Democratic leadership think they're winning. And as a result, uh, uh, no one's going to vote on these.
2: Well, you know, I, I think you you might be right that Schumer isn't going to make the change I'm advocating, but I, I would think there'd be a different reason for that. I, I don't think the Democrats are winning. I, I actually think Tuberville, you know, is single-handedly, you know, defeating the the Biden administration and the Senate majority. And it, it's not not only is it not a good good for the country, it's it's not a good look for the Democrats. But I think the only reason that Schumer might tolerate it is because he's actually more worried that the Dems could lose the um, majority. Right? So he doesn't want to change rules um, that, that protect uh, uh, minorities you know, right, right before they maybe become the, the minority. And, and so I think that might be what's keeping it. But it's, it's hard for me to see that this is a good issue for the Dems. I mean, it's just it's a real erosion of, uh, 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 of national security that's taking place because one Republican senator is able to push around the rest of the government.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you on that, Ken. And, and Trey, I was going to take issue with you, you thinking this is good for the Dems, because I think, you know, that's one historical issue is the Republicans pressing Dems as being weak on security. And I think having this number of positions open and the country at risk, it it, it makes an argument that under Biden's watch, you know, our national security has eroded. And And even with the Dems controlling the Senate, they haven't been able to protect us, so I, I agree. I don't. I don't think this is great for the Dems. I don't. I don't think it's great for the country. Um, it's 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 bad news. What's going on in Congress right now?
0: But again, I mean, you could go through the you could go through the non fast track process, and you could have done that. Uh, you know, two hundred and eighty five. No,
2: it's <laughs> it's not. That's not a realistic answer. I mean, like for instance, the 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 government needs a, pretty soon a, a budget, um, or you know, there's going to be a government shutdown. Now you know they have to work on that. It's not actually possible to work on on both, right? So it's it's either you know they're gonna they're gonna confirm um, some uh, you know a few uh, military commanders while the whole rest of the government shuts down, um, or they're gonna you know work on trying to keep the government open and get some kind of um, uh, c- continuing resolution. In which case, there is no time to 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 confirm these these nominees.
0: I think that's one. I mean, again, maybe I recognize this is a place. Maybe we're going to disagree a little bit, but that's to say. Oftentimes the argument is Congress needs to be able to move more rapidly, uh, and I hear that right. There's lots of things that that Congress has to do. There's lots of things that the Senate has to do, but simultaneously, the purpose of a deliberative body is to have deliberation. And, and if the if the fundamental argument is, well, look, uh, our our processes are such that if we can't fast track everything, then we can't actually function. That that I mean, that's a broader Problem with your deliberative democracy uh, than no, just the particular it's, vote.
2: It's not Trey. It's just a problem with the size of our U.S. military. The the number of military promotions um, is not. You know, if, if the if the U.S. Congress, you know, spent a hundred percent of its time only working on military promotions and never working on anything else, um it it, it still wouldn't have enough time to do all the military promotions. I'm true. Right. So you can't run it that way. You have to run it. They have these unanimous consent rules so they can function. And people have sometimes used these holds to make a point. They have unanimous but they never they never they never hang on to it this long and they never do it in ways that cause uh, serious harm to the national security. This is unprecedented.
0: We have uni- we have unanimous consent rules in the Senate because we want to have the possibility of holding things up. The, the, it, it is there. The reason that it continues to exist is because both sides, at different uh, at different points, wants to be sides. able to throw no. wrenches. No one, into one, no one has ever, uh, no one has ever uh, done anything
2: like this. Trey, no one has ever done anything like this before. It's not a both sides thing. Well, who,
0: this was, is the, who was the first person to go nuclear? It was Republicans on Democrats who wouldn't put forward uh, uh, judges.
2: Right, but that, that's different. I mean, the judges, you know, it's it's conventional to have a hearing on a judge. It's not conventional to have a hearing on every single routine military promotion. These are these are promotions that are, you know, recommended internally within the military. These aren't political appointments. Um, there's not supposed to be hearings on these, and there couldn't be in the nature of things. I mean, every it's not a fair comparison because every single federal judge compa- does get a confirmation but, but, hearing. Now be clear. I wasn't trying to make, a, make
0: a comparison between, uh, uh, between that. What I'm trying to say, though, is, is that the purpose of unanimous consent was not to try to get things done, but to try to not get things done.
2: No, I mean, every military promotion in the history of the country until now came through this unanimous consent process.
0: It had to because that's what existed. But I'm saying the reason we continue to deal with unanimous consent in the Senate is because we universally want there to be holdups in the senatorial process
2: Right, but there's rules and there's norms. Like it, it, would be normal for there to be holdups, but the holdups are, you know, until people start paying attention, and then, the, and then the person, you know, the Tuberville could make his point about the, um, you know, the, the abortion funding. You know, he's made his point. The media's heard his point. The public's heard his point. You know, and and in in history, at that point, they let the hold drop. They wouldn't just keep going to the point where we don't even have a Pacific force. If if China if China invades Taiwan tomorrow, you know we don't we don't have a chain of command in the Pacific in the Pacific to deal with that because of Tuberville. No nobody's ever done anything like that before.
0: Liz, you want to you want to take on to get me?
1: Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm on Team Ken on this one. Not, no one's ever done this, <laughs> and and to add to what Ken just said, you know, all of our the rest of the world knows this as well because of all the media attention. So, so any enemies we have out there, people know that in the Pacific we have no, no ch- head of the chain of command. Like the, the the absences are glaring, and public, and put our our country in jeopardy. And so, I think that's it's a bridge, it's a step too far when a uh, when Tuberville is is doing this political gamesmanship with national security. I just don't think there's any excuse for it.
0: Well, I'll take the outside on this one. But I will say it's been a lot of fun to get beat up on from both of you. I mean that honestly, though. It's a lot of fun having you on the show, Liz. Well, Ken, Liz, thank you guys so much for both joining me. And Liz, again, I want to double thank you for uh, for putting up with me and Ken. I mean, you know, having to listen to, uh, to to our craziness on the show. Thank you for joining us.
1: Well, thanks for having me, though. I got to tell you, I'm, I was... Slightly disappointed we didn't cover McGonagall, only because I was going to tell you both that I have a uh, a funny personal connection to this story because uh, I don't know if Ken ever mentioned to you but we my husband and I lived in Russia for a couple of years and Pitanin was our neighbor in Russia so when this story broke about McGonagall, uh and and this corruption scheme I was I was floored to see first that he basically sacrificed his career and reputation in life for payment. Of, from a guy who's a billionaire, but he was being paid by Darapaska to reveal information on Patanin, who's probably one of the only, you know, if there's such a thing as a good oligarch, one of the only only good oligarchs left. And the the media has not put much attention on the fact that Darapaska is basically a puppet of Putin, and Patanin is one of the only viable opponents. You know, left of Putin that's still not jailed or. Um, See, poisoned.
0: I, I so. should have known that, yeah. given my long history with Ken, that you would you would be all over an espionage and diplomacy <laughs> story. I love, and I, I love it. I actually know I, I know some
2: of the people involved
0: in this story in the, on the New York side of it too. So yeah, that's uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'd say what we'll have to do. We'll uh, you know, I think, think this is going to be that's one we could go into yeah. again. Yeah. I think next time we're all together, we should go into this in detail. Maybe even kind of lead with it. I think that'd be a lot of fun uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, all the way around and do that. Uh because I know I think that would be a lot of fun anyway. I, I had some things for it. But I will stop us there because I know yeah. uh, uh uh for our show you know, we're we're kind of coming kind of to the end of the time. Yeah. But what I wanted to do say as I as I kind of end this up is, is if you if you've come to this this far with us on the politics guys. Uh, and you're not already a supporter of the politics, guys. I really hope you'd be considered becoming one, right? Uh, what makes this show possible is some really amazing supporters. That's what makes the podcast possible. That what's makes it possible for, for myself and for Ken and for Mike and for Jay uh, uh, to do what we do. And we don't, we're not just asking you to do it out of the goodness of your heart, we're asking you to do it because you get all kinds of really cool, good stuff, uh, like, for example, the ad-free version uh, of everything that we put out, including this show right now. It also gets you ex- uh, ex- an exclusive show, our supporters' exclusive midweek show, where, in, at least in the case of Ken and myself, we break away from the, con- uh, the constraints of the news cycle and, and discuss the Constitution. We've been going through the U.S. Constitution. Uh, this week, we were just going through the Article 5 of the Constitution, the amendment process, and I'd love for you to be able to join that part of the show uh, and, and have those midweek cycles with myself and Ken and hey, maybe at one point, Liz, if you'd ever uh, consider joining us, uh, diving into the Constitution or one of the amendments. So. There's all kinds of uh, cool things you get as a supporter. One of the other ones that I'll uh, mention in addition to the supporters' exclusive midweek show is our very active Politics Guys Discord group. As a matter of fact, uh, between doing some of the recordings, I was actually doing some videos of what I was recording with Ken and posting it on there. And supporters were taking a look at that. That's always a lot of fun. I love interacting on that space, and I'd love to interact with you as well. So if you would be interested in any of those, what you can do is you can go to patreon.com slash politicsguys. That's, again, patreon.com slash politicsguys. And you can see all the different levels of support, the different things you get, at those different levels of support. Uh, And you can select your level of support and start joining in and getting all of those really cool uh, benefits. If you'd like to support us in other ways, there's other possibilities as well. On Venmo, we're at politicsguys. You can also support the show through PayPal. All of those support links and others are available in the show notes. And if you like typing it into a browser, you can always head to politicsguys.com slash support for the whole menu of options. Now, if you'd like to get the midweek show, but you're just not in a position to do that financially right now, listen, I get that. I've got three kiddos and I work in education. So yeah, I know what that's like. All you got to do is just reach out to us at at mailatpoliticsguys.com and we can get you set up. And that's a lot of fun too. So please, if that's the case, just again, send something to mailatpoliticsguys.com and we'll get you set up. Now, whether you're a supporter or not, I know that I would really appreciate it if you would subscribe, rate, and review us on whatever podcast app you use. So click down there on Spotify, on Apple Music, or anything in between, and just share out that episode. That is huge for us. If you've got a question, a comment, a correction, a gripe, a manifesto, or just anything else you'd like to share, you can always reach us at mail at politicsguys.com. We're also on Facebook and X, and you can find all of those links in the show notes. I want to give a special shout out, as always, to the executive producers of the Politics Guys. Thank you all. To Bruce Johnson, Wilma Marino, Andra Masker, Daniel Toe, Ryan Beasley, and Don Oglesby. We'll be back with a new episode this next week. I hope you'll join us then.